The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Basic thing, regardless of what method you're using, needs to be that the dog understands and you're communicating clearly with the dog. Do you have trouble physically making it through long hunts? Is your dog always giving you that angry look telling you to keep up? You train your dog, but now it's time to train yourself. Rocky Mountain Hunt Strong is the company for any hunter that is looking for an effective fitness routine to get healthier and be able to hunt longer and harder. This company has merged fitness and the passion of hunting to help people like you and me continue to do what we love. From the Rockies to the Smokies and every field or prairie in between, this company can get you ready to go longer, cover more ground, and recover quicker. Go to RockyMountainHuntStrong.com and see their program for yourself. Use the discount code GDIY to save 15% and get to work. Train harder, hunt stronger, and recover faster. Welcome back to another week of GDIY. Me and Adam have a really interesting podcast for you this week. We we have Angie Barron of Elite Sport Dogs this week, and we really dive deep into behavior theory and the importance of why instead of how and it's a kind of a longer episode so this is going to be a nice short sweet and to the point uh, intro really we don't have anything else to add i mean it's this it's a really fascinating episode i think you guys are really going to like this yeah it's it's really awesome um enough said really i mean you'll <laughs> Listen hear it. To it's, it. It, it co- it's good it covers a lot of stuff so uh yeah just, she's awesome yeah be it be yeah listening to that check it out uh follow us on instagram like us on facebook hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're on give us some feedback especially on this episode we'd love to hear what you think gundog at yourself at gmail.com uh check out our patreon patreon.com forward slash gundog at yourself and uh yeah hope you guys enjoy we're not going to keep you too much longer because this is a longer episode and uh, we'll be back with you next week you're gonna love it If you're currently in the market for a kennel, then be sure to check out Gunner Kennels. Gunner Kennels is the only kennel that's five-star crash rated from the Center for Pet Safety. The double-wall rotomodal construction ensures it holds up in all types of weather and conditions. Also, Gunner Kennels has a lifetime warranty. These kennels are built to last a lifetime, and Gunner stands behind that. Gunner also has all the accessories you can need from fan kits to help keep them cool, performance and orthopedic pads to help keep them comfortable and ready to go after long travels, and even tie-down straps to help ensure there's no worries for the kennel moving or sliding around in your truck. 
So if you need man's best kennel for man's best friend, head on over to gundogityourself.com and click on the Gunner link. Be sure to purchase your kennel, accessories, and even gift cards for holidays and birthdays through our link, and it will go a long way in helping out the podcast. All right, everybody. We have Angie Barron of Elite Sport Dogs on the line. Angie, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Hey, we're doing good. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Anytime. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to learning about uh, dogs and and behavior theory. And- yeah. Everything. So, so go ahead and start and tell everybody where you're from and uh, a little bit about yourself. So I'm from Southern Alberta, which is in Canada, and I've kind of got myself a little training business going here. But I started out like from the time I was a kid, I've always been into both dogs and horses. Uh, and then from the time I was about 14, I started working in the thoroughbred racing industry. Like, I'd always been involved with horses and dogs, mostly horses on a competitive level. Um, I did some showing, so like show jumping, reining horses, stuff like that. But when I was 14, I got more into the horse racing side of things. And I got myself a job on a breeding farm and did all my schooling through distance learning, correspondence, stuff like that, while working a full-time job. And it just kind of took off from there. Very cool. I'm interested to hear about the similarities in horses and dogs because I've been going out with my wife who's who's teaching some uh horse lessons and and kind of helping her with some things i don't know what i'm doing so she just tells me what to do but i keep noticing some similarities between horses and dogs do you think that's true are there some things that are similar oh yeah like i mean we're training them to do different things but the way we train them is essentially the same right we do something to cause a behavior to either reoccur more often or less often whatever that behavior may be yeah that sounds like pretty much what we're trying to do with dogs um i guess what are the what what's different about the methods with training a horse in comparison to a dog well with a horse you're for one you're sitting on their back <laughs> and you're asking them that's a to pretty do. distinct difference yep yep Right, you're asking them to do a lot different things and you're asking them to do it while having all that extra weight on their back. Because even if you're a light person, that's still a lot of extra weight for them to pack around. And it's for an animal that only, that has four legs and balances, eat, like, well, not necessarily equally. There's a lot of stuff in there that's way beyond the scope of it. But it really changes things. And so we have to teach them how to not only do these things, but do it while carrying the weight of the rider. Whereas with the dogs, we don't have that. We just have to worry about their own body awareness and their own training. Yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like maybe dogs are a little bit easier to work with. Um, one, because they're <laughs> they're so much smaller. You don't have to saddle them up or anything. Yeah, so I'm wondering if, you know, having experience with horses and dogs, if you find one easier than the other. They're both very different in their, like it's, they're different, but they're not. I don't know really. I can almost visualize the the problem horses and the problem dogs. As you take a deep breath, you're like, well, I would say this one, but I had a problem with this one dog one time or maybe this one horse. Well, Well, you know what? Dangerous horses and dangerous dogs are both dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know anything about horses and you know oh so, i don't either <laughs> so let's go ahead and get into the dogs this is gun dog it yourself that's well, right i told nick gun horse it yourself horses for long 
So you, you said that you've been involved with dogs forever, pretty much. Uh, is that just any dog, just companion dogs, or have you focused on hunting dogs? Do you hunt yourself? Well, for the most part, like, like most people, I started out with pet dogs, obviously. And then when I was about 16, we had started having some problems with one of our pet dogs. And so we ended up calling in a trainer to come help us out with his problems. And she got me into a lot of the competitive sports, specifically, I, well, Schutzen is what it was called at the time. And now it went to IB, IPO and now it's IGP. Um, so she got me involved with a club that did that. And that's kind of where I started getting competitive with the dog training. It was still a hobby at that point because I was still very busy with the racehorses. But I was out at the club usually three or four days a week with my dog doing tripping. Hey, awesome. And so that just naturally eventually steered you in the direction of hunting dogs? Actually, I kind of always was fascinated with the hunting dogs, but I never did learn how to hunt. Nobody ever showed me until I was a little bit older. And I actually, I was more into the, interested in the big game, but the time of year when I started talking to this guy that was the one that showed me a lot of what I know about hunting, it was September. Well, big game season wasn't open. So he's like, well, let's go shoot some birds, get you comfortable with a gun and all that stuff. And oh my God, I was so hooked. <laughs> <laughs> It'll do it to you. I was like, oh my God, this would be so much better with a dog. And the next thing I know, I had the hunting dog and now I'm trialing and testing. And yeah, it's definitely where my heart is now. What what breed did you start with? German short hair. All right, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you still <laughs> still own and, and use to this day? Mm-hmm. Awesome. I mean, I've had a lot of experience with a lot of other breeds, but I really like the like a lot of the, like the horseback trial bred German short hairs. I know they're not everybody's cup of tea, but I rather enjoy them. Big engine on those two guys. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's cool. So you still get to do the horse thing and and uh, the dog thing. So I'm sure a lot yeah. of people, well, they, a hear, lot of that. they hear uh German short hair and they kind of roll their eyes like, oh, another short hair. But, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why they're the most popular out there. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah. Well, and a lot of it was too, is that big engine and that fascination with just these super athletic, high strung dogs came from my days in horse racing, right? Because I know kind of how to put a little bit of brakes on that without kind of gumming up the engine, so to speak. A good analogy. I like that. <laughs> so so you, you started transitioning to hunting dogs. You got hooked on hunting. And uh, so from talking to you before you came on, I know that you you focus on training a whole, by a bunch of different methods. You don't concentrate on just one method. Uh, you try and learn as many as possible and apply them to the dog correctly as needed. Why is it so important to be able to match the right method for each individual dog? Because each individual dog is an individual dog. They're not all going to respond to the same thing the same way. And so a lot of trainers like to define themselves as balanced trainers. So it means that they basically use a little bit from everything but where they fall in that balance spectrum tends to vary. But what you need to remember is that balance means giving the dog what it needs in balance. 
and we can learn something from every different methodology that you can put in your toolbox and say, hey, I might try this with this dog when you'd never dream of trying it with another dog. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, each dog is different, just like each person is different. So, you know, we don't all respond to certain things uh, the same and, and animals don't either. So the different methods that you use, can you explain the different methods you use a little bit or, or tell us what they are? Well, um, <laughs> loaded question. <laughs> there's a lot of old school shutsund in my background. So okay. the guy that taught me a lot about what I know about shutsund, uh, his name is Rudy Meetser, and probably every IPO person in the States just perked right up right there. Um, cause I didn't know him at the time, but he was actually kind of a really big deal in the shutsund world. But nice. he was this, by the time I met him, he was like a 60 year old German guy. And so I learned a lot about like yank and crank compulsion training from there. And it can be used very, very well. But on the other side of that, there's the purely positive, never, ever correct your dog, right? The dog has to be willing in all things, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And some of that stuff works really, really good. But again, you've got to use it in balance. So like your Karen prior clicker training, stuff like that, there's some really good concepts in there, but you don't necessarily want to be a zombie and use it in pure form all the time with every dog. Sure. And I think different stages, like I, I've used clicker training a lot with the dog, with my dog when he was young to teach certain things and then kind of steer away from the clicker and food as reward or food as an enticement once the dog is, is more mature. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I guess. No, and it's just the judgment of kind of like, it's just the process of developing some judgment and figuring out what works best for that particular dog. Yeah. And the, and the different, each particular dog during different stages in their life too. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Cool. So- like, I mean, with that compulsion stuff, like, I mean, you don't ever want to use that on puppies. Like with puppies, pretty much everything should be happy, happy, positive all the time. Yep. But they get to a stage where that's not going to fly anymore. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So you mentioned the one trainer in Schutzen that was really paramount in, in your learning and as uh, as it pertained to dog training, was there any other trainers or how did you go about learning so many different methods and concentrating on matching the right method to the right dog and when? Well, I was fortunate that we had a lot of really good trainers in that. So Rudy was the one that was basically the president of the club and it was his club. Um, but we had another trainer there who was our trainer director or training director. And her name was Josie. And she traveled all over the States and trained with a lot of big names. So like Tom Rose, Ivan Balabanov, like all these guys, like there was a lot, there was a really large wealth of information in that club. And like, we even had agility people that would come train with us that were not into corrections at all, but they kind of did their own thing. But as long as the dog getting the results, do it the way you want to do it. Absolutely. That's, that's kind of how I look at it is, you know, obviously I haven't trained that many dogs, but uh, just doing it, I've, I've realized that you talk to 10 different people, there's going to be 10 different ways that they train their dog. And, and as long as it works, I'm not going to knock it. I, I kind of want to learn you know, how everybody else did it. And, and hopefully I can pick up on something that'll help me out in the future. 
So from learning from all these different people and all the different methods, was there one, just one commonality and one common element among all the methods that, that you tended to focus on? The, one, the basic thing, regardless of what method you're using, needs to be that the dog understands and you're communicating clearly with the dog. I don't care what method you're using. That is the main principle of good training is the dog needs to know what you're asking. And that really just comes down to what behavior theory, right? That That's what you're really getting around to, right? So go ahead. Let's let's jump on into that. Define what behavior theory really is. I, I think you kind of just did, but is there? Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? So behavior theory is basically just being kind of the wise and well, the theory of why dog training works. Um, yeah, it's basically the theory behind why everything that we do works and why it works, the way it works, the fallouts from it, right? So some dogs don't always necessarily follow the behavior theory as we interpret it, but it's still something we need to study for a number of different reasons, not only to make us better dog trainers, but to allow us to have conversations with other dog trainers. Right, absolutely. So, so this behavior theory, it's just that. It's really the theory of how dogs communicate and how dogs learn. And it focuses on, you know, people get sick of me saying it on every episode, focus on the on the uh, why instead of the how. So it's not really a how-to guide. Like you're not going to look up behavior theory. You're not going to Google it and it's going to say, okay, take your dog out and do the X, Y, and Z. It's, it's really a, a way of trying to understand how your dog learns and communicates with you. Exactly. So going further into behavior theory, how, how is it that the dog is learning? So there's basically two main branches of behavior theory, if you will. And the first one I kind of want to talk about is what's called classical conditioning. Yep. So classical conditioning is where we're basically pairing an involuntary response to a stimulus that was previously meaningless to the dog. So your prime example of this would be clicker training, right? The clicker means nothing to the dog until we condition that clicker to mean something. That makes so sense. So click- I really don't have to use a clicker. I could snap my fingers, I could tap my leg, I could make any noise or maybe not even a noise, but maybe just something that the dog recognizes, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be a clicker. Yep, some kind of cue that the dog can recognize that is immediately followed by whatever you're trying to pair it to. So in the case of clicker training, that would be food, right? So you'll go click, food, click, food, click, food. And eventually the dog is going to learn that when he hears the click, it means food is coming. And yeah. so it's important to note that that is a completely involuntary response. Like the dog doesn't make a choice. He hears the click and his brain will process that click the exact same way that he would, 
his brain would function in the in the presence of food. I've seen people use the word yes instead of a clicker. They literally say yes to the dog and then yep. and then and reward that's it with exactly food. what I do. Oh, okay. So you don't even use a clicker. You just say yes. I do not use a clicker. Um, I've got a couple issues with clickers. For one, I lose the things all the time. You can yeah. never keep track of them. <laughs> yep. You'll have like 20 of the things and not be able to find one. <laughs> and the other problem with the clicker is too is your clicker isn't always on you. Like even if you're super diligent about trying to keep one on you all the time, yep. there's going to be times where you need it and you don't have it or you're going to have it in your pocket just in case because you're not on your wrist all the time. And then you're going to see an opportunity to click and reward the dog. Well, now you're digging through your pockets and you're like, oh, where's my clicker? Wait, and now I've got my clicker. It, I'm ready now. Yeah. <laughs> right. And by the time you find it, your opportunity's passed. Yeah, I, I've definitely been there before. I was helping someone with a dog the other day and uh, was just teaching it healing on a leash and it became like too much to deal with, with a leash and a clicker. And, you know, I really like the clicker, mm-hmm. but I didn't start saying yes, but I just started saying, you know, good dog. Uh, much more enthusiastic than that. You don't need to hear my good, <laughs> you don't need to hear my good puppy voice on here though. Okay. Well, you just, you just said enthusiastic. Uh, I'm curious. So what are the benefits of the clicker? You know, I've always told that the clicker is more ideal than a verbal because it, it, it takes the emotion out of it. You get the mm. same consistency on a click than what you would your, your voice is. Is there anything to that in your, in your uh, thought? There can be. So especially with people that aren't quite, they don't have really enough experience to be totally aware of their, how, what they're doing and how it has an effect on the dog. Yeah. Right. So some people like they'll say yes and give the dog a piece of food and then they'll get really excited and be like, Oh yes. And give the dog a piece of food. <laughs> well, your dog, that's like two totally different things. So the clicker is all like, it's consistent. That's the purpose of the clicker, but we can overcome that just by making a point of trying to be very consistent with our voice. That makes sense. So you have to be really aware. And then, you know, I, we use like, instead of saying no, Nick and I both use at just because it's, it's not a word that you're going to use in our English language. Um, and it, it's easier to sound a little more like I'm serious when you say at rather than no. Um, so are there certain words maybe that people should stick to other than yes? I mean, have you heard anything else of people using or that kind of is? So I have a whole like variety of words that I'll condition these sounds okay. like, that I'll condition the dog to have response to. So it's basically the whole foundation of my system is it's basically establishing a communication system with the dog. So with yes, which is basically where you would use a clicker if you're using one, it means you've done well, you're right, come get your reward, your piece of food, your toy. So then I have good. And good basically tells the dog that you're right. I want you to keep doing what you're doing. You can't break the behavior, but you're doing it right. And you will get your piece of food if you continue to pass. Okay. Right. So we can use that for duration or for like, if we need the dog to sit longer. So if they've just been sitting and then yes, piece of food, well, we need the dog to stay sitting a little bit longer than half a second when its butt hits the ground. So it'll sit and we'll say good. So they still like, okay, yeah, I did what I was supposed to do, but I'm not going to get my reward yet. There's more to this that I still need to do yet. 
So you use good as more of like an encouragement and yes as a final, like, yes, you did it. Yep, you did it. We're good. You can come engage with me in a good reward. And so sometimes like depending on what I'm trying to do. So like I can use food in good, but it means that, you know, so if the dog sits and I say good, then I can give the dog a piece of food while the dog stays in a sit. But like there's other areas. So like with our force fetch and stuff like that, obviously we can't be stuffing food in the dog's mouth if we're not ready for them to sit the dumbbell yet. Sure. But you can do it in other areas that kind of condition that response to the good word too. And so, so naturally, there are going to be some people that hear that and they're like, oh, that dog doesn't know the difference between yes or, or good or anything like that. But that kind of falls into the classical conditioning that we were just talking about. And over time, the dog is going to learn to associate that word with the expected outcome or what the behavior that you're trying to encourage or, or get out of them. Well, and that's just it. If a dog doesn't understand the difference between yes and good until we condition it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So all this so far right, is me- positive with, you know, yes, good, rewarding. What about on the negative end of, is there a negative end of classical conditioning? Yes, absolutely. So dogs can be conditioned to have basically Pavlovian responses to bad things as well. So if I walk up to my dog and I go, Hey, and it doesn't even need to be in a bad tone of voice. It can just be like, Hey, how are you? And then I punch the dog in the face and then I go, Hey, how are you? And then I punch the dog in the face. Well, eventually that dog, when I say, Hey, how are you? That dog's going to start cowering and threat like, Oh my God, she's going to punch me. Yep. Right. So it can go, it doesn't need to be conditioned always to good things. You can condition it to things that are aversive as well. Well, and, and so I'm, I'm going back to with certain commands. I have to right off the bat, give the command to my dog. And it sounds almost like a correction because if I give it in a normal tone of voice, the dog doesn't respond to it. And I've, I guess I've conditioned the dog to, you know, not do something until it hears me like lay down, you know? (laughs) Exactly. And that's exactly what happens, right? Because if you say, and then you enforce it right away, if the dog doesn't lay down, Mm -hmm. then you'll have the exact same response to that lay down as you will to lay down. (laughs) Start getting into that. They like, Oh, I know you're serious now. <laughs> yep, that's right. Yeah, I'm. I'm listening to all and this. The dog and I'm knows like, you're going to ask them three times before you <laughs> exactly. actually make them do it. Exactly. Well, yeah. So my dog doesn't know what lay all the way down means. It just I've conditioned him to not lay all the way down until I lose it and and go there with the dog <laughs> to where you have <laughs> have enough motivation to actually enforce what you're telling. Right. Them. So it just happens to be on that tone when yep. you you get angry enough. So, Angie, you, you said during all that, you, you used a, a key phrase there that I think some people might might want some explanation on, the Pavlovian responses. I'm assuming that you're talking about Pavlov's experiments, and you want to touch on that for the people that don't know what that consists of? Sure. So, if you've never heard of Ivan Pavlov before, he was a Russian scientist that was doing experiments on salivatory responses and in dogs. And it was actually kind of interesting because the results of that study weren't at all what he was trying to go for. 
So basically, he was just trying to study what gets dogs to salivate and the details behind salivation. And what he found was is when the researchers would go to feed the dogs, the dogs would hear the researchers' footsteps, know that they were coming to feed them, and it was totally messing up as his experiment because they'd start drooling at the sound of the researchers' footsteps. And he's like, no, 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 we can't have this. So he set up an automated feeding system so that the researchers no longer had to be present for the dogs to get fed. And so this automated system had a bell or a tone that would go off before the food would drop. And what happened was, was after hundreds of repetitions, the dogs hearing this bell, and then the food would drop, bell, food, bell, food, they began to have the exact same response to the bell as they did to the actual food itself, even though there was no food present at all. Very cool. And then years later we go, oh yeah, we can use a clicker and and (laughs) capitalize on the same thing pretty much, right? Exactly. So, I mean, he wasn't necessarily the first person to study those kinds of things, but he was the first person to really define it in depth and do basically peer-reviewed actual studies on it. Okay. So, so really, I mean, what we're talking about is, you know, we, we've said it a, a number of times and people who probably hear it all the time is dogs don't learn the same way we do. They don't, they don't reason it out the same way we do. They learn more by association. So really this, this conditioning that we're calling it, it's really association. It's kind of like the experiment when they hear that bell, they associate that with food and then they start salivating. Is, is that Is that really where this whole dog learns by association derived from? It's one of like, it's one of them. I mean, it's a lot of like in practice. I mean, you can have some really terrible trainers out there that don't understand the, basically the nuances and the behavior theory at all, but the dog learns to associate certain things with certain things and they do end up getting the job done. Right. The dog's going to learn by the conditioning or the association, whether the handler understands what they're actually doing or not. I mean, that's the dog's nature is that's how they learn. And and so whether the handler knows that that's what they're, they're applying, that that's how the dog's going to learn. Well, and the tricky thing about this association too is, so when Pavlov kind of discovered that effect with the bell and the food, he kind of started playing with it a little bit too. And so what he found was that if the bell occurred too far before the food was dropped, then no conditioning happened. Or if it occurred at the same time that the food was being dropped, also no conditioning happened. So it has to be immediately before the thing that you're trying to, associate, you're trying to get the dog to associate it with. That's really so your interesting. Your timing on that is very important. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. It's again got to be an immediate precursor, and and so like go back to the clicker. That's a good example because the clicker is essentially a marker. The same way whether you use you know verbals, yes or good, you're doing it at the exact time of them doing a specific action. But how? How does that apply to what Pavlov figured out with it being an immediate precursor if we're marking it while they're doing it, if that makes sense? So 
what's important with conditioning your dog to any kind of marker, whether it's a clicker word, whatever, it's technically called a conditioned reinforcer is what it's called. If you're using it as like to condition it to food or a toy or something like that, that is the technical term for it. But so when you're trying to condition your conditioned reinforcers, it's really important that if you're using the word, yes, you go, yes, and then move to give the food. So what a lot of people will do is they'll go yes, and as they're saying the word yes, they're already digging through their pre- their treat pouch. Well, you've just overridden your conditioned reinforcer there. It's now meant nothing to the dog because now you're already digging through your treat pouch, and what you've done, the dog's like totally oblivious to it. You're so ringing that's the physical. bell and feeding at the same time, essentially. Exactly. And that's where I was, that that was a disconnect for me as I was thinking of it as a precursor for the action as opposed to the reward. So it's really the, the marker or the reinforced, uh, that you were just talking about. It's a precursor to you actually giving them the. Exactly. Right. So it needs to come first. So you'd say yes, while you're perfectly still. And once you've completed the word, yes, then you can reach into your treat pouch and go get your food. Gotcha. Okay. Well, besides the clicker, I know that we, you know, that's probably the easiest and most relatable for most people. How does classical conditioning, how else is it used in training that, that other people can relate to? Well, you can use it as a conditioned punisher as well. So like we were talking about earlier where if I said, hey, how are you? And I punched the dog in the face, yeah, right? Yeah. You maybe don't want to go like that route with it. But so like say when you start, I mean, it should start before this. But like when you're using your e-collar, a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll hit the button and say no at the same time. So again, your physical, so your e-collar stim is totally overriding your, ver- your verbal at that point. Mm. So if I say no, and then immediately follow it with e-collar stim, that is going to teach the dog that no means a correction is coming. And you can actually give them time to stop what they're doing before you actually issue the correction if you've done it right. And that word no, well, I'm getting to that a little bit more in a second here, but that word, whatever word you use for your conditioned punisher will have the same effect on the dog, again, completely involuntary, as if you jacked the dog. So I guess the idea so, is with with trying to curb a certain behavior, you're going to warn them with your verbal and then actually correct them with, when we're using the e-collar, for an example, right now. So pretty soon, you won't have to do the correction, just the warning will be enough. Or I, I guess you're saying the, the warning becoming the correction? The warning basically becomes the correction. So you want to be careful with warnings because if you give the dog a warning that you're going to correct them, but you don't always correct them, Mm -hmm. then they're going to learn that it's just a warning and sometimes they'll just blow off the warning. So you basically need to condition that word to basically have the same effect as if you just corrected them. Okay. It just goes back into conditioning and and reps and they'll, they'll eventually figure it out so what do you say to the 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 people because i've been told a lot especially let's keep going with the e-collar example is 
if the dog knows it's not supposed to do something, you don't give any verbal indication. You just hit them with the e-collar and there's no warning whatsoever. Is there a drawback to that? Well, what happens when you don't have your e-collar? That's when you get the e-collar dependent dog. <laughs> so that's the thing. Like we, like when you condition that, then like I said, it's exactly as though you have corrected the dog. They have that same involuntary response. So if you don't say anything and you just correct them with the e-collar, I mean, it really depends on the situations. Like sometimes you want to do that, especially if you're trying to create what's called a superstitious association. So it's not necessarily the correction is coming from you. They just, the correction, they don't necessarily know where it's coming from. So, so kind of like if you if you have a dog that likes to chase deer and you want the dog to associate, stop chasing deer, you want the dog to associate the correction coming from the deer scent almost, and you hit them with the e-collar. That's why you don't want to step in and do a verbal or anything. You just want them to think that that, they want to associate the deer with the correction. Is that correct? Exactly. And in that kind of high chase mode, nothing you say, like they're not even going to hear it when you say it anyway. <laughs> it's going to be totally, they're going to be totally oblivious to it anyway. But you do need to be careful about that too, right? Because if they're chasing the deer and you give them the e-collar stim and they associate it with the deer, that's great. That's exactly what you want to happen. But what can happen kind of by accident is they get the e-collar stim and now they've associated with the tree that they were standing beside when it happens. And now they don't want to go anywhere near that tree anymore. Well, so you kind of have to be careful with that. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like when, when people are advising other people how to, how to break your dog from chasing deer or whatever. It's one of those, if you don't know a hundred percent that it's a deer, if you don't see that deer, you don't shock them because you don't technically don't know without a shadow of a doubt what caused that dog to start chasing. Exactly. Like if you're going to use a correction, especially a harsh correction, you need to be very sure of what you're doing with it. You don't want to just start throwing those out willy nilly because you're going to create a whole slew of other problems. Yeah. I've actually, uh, whenever I see deer and I'm, you know, training, I look at it as here's an opportunity and I'm not going to encourage my dog to chase the deer, but I'm going to put the dog in a situation where he may chase the deer and I'm going to be in a position to observe everything so that I can hit him with a pretty high level of stimulation because he's chasing the deer. No verbal command because like you guys are talking about, the dog's just not going to hear it and are not going to respond to it. And <clears throat> I don't want the dog associating the correction to me. I want it to be almost like the correction came from the deer. Deer did it. Yeah. But, it, but I want to be yeah. in a position like, to I mean see everything too, because if the dog is, say, jumping uh, between two strands of barbed wire as I correct him, well, now I've just conditioned my dog to be scared of barbed wire. <laughs> Maybe if they yeah. make that association, like <laughs> yeah, they have right. no control sometimes. Like in a perfect world, what you would do is in your, like in your socialization period, mm -hmm. you would try to get the dog in an environment where they're going to see deer. And you want to, instead of necessarily setting them up in a position where like, ooh, that deer looks good, let's go. We condition them to see the deer and just learn that the deer's 
right? It's not something that I need to worry about, right? Mm -hmm. So I can have my dog, like there's a deer as I'm standing in my window, there's a deer in the window right now. Like I could take my dog outside, that deer could book it. And my dog's not going to care because he knows that I have something better. Mm. And he's been exposed to that situation in particular so that he's just learned that when I see those things, they're just like another treat. They're not for me. I don't care about that thing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So we've talked a bunch about classical conditioning, but you mentioned earlier that there's a balance across the different types of uh, training methods. So what are some of the other, what are some of the other methods you use? So, well, in your behavior theory, so we talked about classical conditioning and then the other kind of main component to your behavior theory is what's called operant conditioning. So this is where basically the dog makes a choice and you're basically manipulating the dog to make particular choices. And those choices have consequences and consequences don't necessarily mean bad things. Consequences can also be good things. So the dog sits and as a consequence, he gets a treat, right? So consequence is not a word that's good or bad. It's just the result of the dog's behavior. Okay. And so... Go ahead. No, I just, uh, I guess where I'm hung up a little bit is the consequence is food. So like a a positive consequence, a good consequence. I told the dog to sit, it sat down, it gets a piece of food. How's that different than the classical conditioning of saying yes or marking that behavior and then rewarding with food? So with classical conditioning, you're conditioning it to something that the dog already knows. So we don't need to teach our dogs to like food. They right. do that kind of all by themselves, right? It's, they have to. It's a survival mechanism, right? So right. with operant conditioning, we're conditioning the dog to do something that isn't necessarily natural to it. So dogs will, like, if dogs are just left to their own devices and they're running, like, they will sit, but there's really nothing good about sitting, right? It's just something that they do to take a break. It doesn't have any value to the dog, but we give it value through operant conditioning. So when the dog chooses to sit, it gets a piece of food. So So we're now influencing that dog. This is the example of uh, when somebody advises somebody, they I'm a first time dog owner and I say, how do I train my dog to sit? And somebody says, when you see that dog naturally sitting on his own and it's going down, that's when you reward them. And then just over time, they're going to associate that action with, with what you're doing instead of asking them to do it. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Sorry, can you repeat that? (laughs) (laughs) So this is an example of like when somebody asks, how do I teach my dog to sit? And they say, watch your dog at all times say you're sitting in the living room watching TV and you see your dog naturally just about to sit on its own, on its own volition. That's when you reward it as it's doing the behavior on its own already. You didn't ask it to do it. You're just taking advantage of the opportunity, I guess. You can do it that way. That's kind of the slow way of doing it because you're eventually, you're eventually going to have to pair it to a cue because just rewarding the dog every time it sits, isn't going to help you when you ask the dog to sit in a situation where it doesn't necessarily want to sit. 
yeah, I'm I'm like a little bit. I'm questioning my ability to teach a dog to sit right now. <laughs> I thought but it was one tech, of the easiest things to do. Called, well, it's a technique called free shaping, right? Okay. So you basically wait for the dog to offer a behavior and then you reward it. So if you do it that way, so basically what you'll do is, right? If, so if your dog's in the living room and it sits down just out of nowhere and you reward it, that's okay. So that's now a behavior that you've rewarded them for in the past. So now when you go into training mode, that dog might freely offer you a sit just because it is something that's gotten them a reward in the past. They know you have a reward. They're trying to get that reward. And so they sit and then you can say, oh yeah, look at that. You offer to be a job, give them a reward. And, that, and so that's where that's, that comes in useful. Yeah, and that's <laughs> where the old timers say never teach a bird dog to sit. Because you don't want them in the field sitting when you're trying to teach them something else. Right. Nick, Nick and I were both looking at each other like, who's going to say it first? Because we could, <laughs> I could see that he was going to say that. But I think, well, and I haven't using- taught my bird dog to sit, but what do you think? I think it depends on uh, when in their you know, training cycle, if you want to call it that, when you have taught them to sit. What do you think? Well, when you've taught them to sit can be a factor. It ultimately comes down to your ability to separate behaviors from each other, right? So the problem with the reason that this whole don't ever teach your pointing dog to sit thing came in is what happens is, is it becomes often a default behavior. So like I said, with the freely offering behaviors, then you're going to get into trouble because if you're in a situation, things are getting kind of dicey. And everything's gone crazy. Your dog's like, I don't know what to do. And they start offering you behaviors. Well, if you've constantly rewarded that, rewarded them for free offering that shit, <laughs> what do you think they're going to go to? <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Absolutely. So, so to continue. Right? And so oftentimes, like, sorry, we'll, um, sorry. Oftentimes, like what'll happen is, is people go to their sit as their default all the time, yes. right? So the dog's kind of getting into trouble, like sit, 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 sit. And after so many repetitions of that, when the dog's like, oh my God, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to sit because I know this is the safe behavior that's had a lot of re history. So I'm going to default to this. Exactly. I'm, I'm glad that I got So you can teach your bird dog that. to sit. You just don't want it to be the default. Sorry. No, yeah, that, that no, makes... you just you can teach your bird dog to sit. You just can't have it become a default behavior that they offer all the time. Right. That that makes sense. I'm glad I got affirmation on that. I've been explaining that to everybody the correct way. Then and uh, so so just to continue on this operant conditioning, in, in my elementary understanding of this, this is also where the the four quadrants uh, come from. Right. The four quadrants of um, I guess, reward, punishment, whatever you want to call it. Oh, yes. The four quadrants that hardly anybody understands clearly <laughs> and everybody has their own definition of. I think I understand <laughs> so like two of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, believe it or not, there is actually defined very clear definitions of each of these quadrants. So basically, the four quadrants are some combination of the words positive and negative and reinforcement. 
So in the top left corner, we have positive reinforcement, which is fairly self-explanatory, right? I mean, dog sits, you give the dog a piece of food. So when the dog sat, we gave the dog something. So we added something, which is the piece of food. We're adding something to the equation, positive, to make the behavior more likely to reoccur in the future, which is reinforcement. So your positive isn't necessarily, positive does not mean good. Negative does not mean bad. It was kind of a poor choice of words, but they're used in a mathematical sense, right? So positive, you're adding something. Negative, you're taking something away. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just adding and subtracting. Yeah. Yeah. That make, that's going to help me understand it more because we've, we've talked about this recently and I think I'm going to start calling it like additional reinforcement and subtracting reinforcement or something <laughs> just yes, so I can understand it better. <laughs> much better. But, and that's where a lot of the confusion is, right? Is positive and negative. And then they put emotional kind of their own emotional responses to them rather than thinking of them in a mathematical sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And the same exactly. goes with the other side of that too, right? Like people think reinforcement means good and punishment means bad. Reinforcement simply means that we're making a behavior more likely to reoccur in the future, and punishment means that we're making it less likely to reoccur in the future. So we've got that first quadrant, which is positive reinforcement. And then if we go over to the top right corner, there we have negative reinforcement. So now, when people hear negative reinforcement, they think that it means a correction. And that's not at all true because a correction is a punishment. We're trying to make a behavior less likely to reoccur instead of making the behavior more likely to reoccur. So that like a correction is punishment. It is not reinforcement. But people hear that, na- that word negative and they're like, oh, it must mean bad. But no, it simply means that we're taking something away. So if I ask my dog to sit, or no, sorry, that's a bad analogy. I'm going to go with something different here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So if I want my dog to sit and he's like, I go and I put a little bit of pressure on his bum to kind of help him kind of give him a hint, like you need to sit. And as soon as he sits, I remove that pressure. That's negative reinforcement because I've removed the pressure from my hand making the dog more likely to re like to do the behavior again in the future. So we've negatively reinforced it, right? It's not a bad thing. The dog's more likely to do it again in the future, but it's negative because we've taken something away from it. So we had pressure and that pressure was taken away. That makes so much sense. I I was a little confused on these a while back uh, because I, I was looking at it as, the pressure on the dog's rear, for example, to get it to sit down, I'm going, I don't understand how that's negative reinforcement because I'm, I'm adding the pressure in there, but in order to take the pressure away, you have to apply the pressure. So, you know, you put the pressure in there and then it's negative reinforcement because I'm removing the pressure once the desired behavior is achieved. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah. So you're not necessarily like applying the pressure isn't what reinforces like, like, so you're applying the pressure to get the dog to sit, but it's the removal of that pressure that actually reinforces the dog. 
Okay. Right. Yeah. So simply putting pressure on the dogs behind isn't going to do anything if you continue that pressure while the dog is still sitting. Gotcha. So real quick, can you give right. give a specific example of positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. You just gave the example of negative reinforcement. So give us an example of positive reinforcement just to where we're adding something and it's not so much reliant on us taking away something such as the pressure. Right. So positive reinforcement simply means you're adding something to reinforce the behavior. So positive and negative reinforcement, you've got, you're either adding something or taking something away. So we had the subtracting by taking the pressure off the dog's thumb. So if the dog sits and I give the dog a cookie, well, now that's positive reinforcement because I've added something, which is the cookie, to make the behavior more likely to reoccur again in the future. Gotcha. Okay. So, so for my dogs, when I go to feed them, it's dinner time. I require them to sit if they get up before I release them to go get the food, I'll take the food up. Would that be considered negative reinforcement because I took away the food? Nope. So now we're going down to the bottom part punishment. of the quadrant. All right. Yes, that is punishment. So if we go down right below, so if we're in the top right-hand corner for negative reinforcement, we go down to the bottom right-hand corner, and that's where we have negative punishment. And I know this is something that sounds like super scary and awful. Like, oh my God, it's a negative punishment. Like it sounds so bad. <laughs> yep. uh, it's non-reinforcement. Like your people that claim that they are positive reinforcement only trainers use negative punishment all the time. It's simply withholding. So in your case, the dog didn't comply with what you've asked. And you don't want that behavior to continue in the future. So you are going to make it less likely reoccur in the future. So punishment. And you've done that by taking away, subtracting negative, the food. So I feel like when someone says, I only use positive reinforcement training, they literally cannot do that without negative punishment. Because I'm, I mean, we're using the example of teaching a dog to sit. I'm going to reward it with food. When it sits, that's positive reinforcement. So as long as the food is in my hand and not in the dog's mouth, it's essentially negative punishment, right? Not necessarily, right? Like okay. so if the dog, you ask the dog to sit and the dog doesn't sit and you don't give it a cookie. It doesn't matter where that cookie is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're just non-reinforcing it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that makes sense. And I, I'm assuming positive punishment, that's, essentially the e-collar that we were talking about a little earlier, right? Those are your traditional corrections. So people hear the word positive and they're like, oh, this must be a good thing. Like, no, positive <laughs> punish, like positive punishment is where your corrections live. So if you give an e-collar correction, you ask the dog to sit, the dog doesn't sit, you hit the button with the e-collar, you have just added something, which is that e-collar stim, to make the behavior of not sitting more like or less likely to reoccur in the future. So positive punishment. Gotcha. That makes sense. So where did the, the four quadrants come from? I mean, we, we talked about classical conditioning, the Pavlov experiment. Who, who came up with the four quadrants for operant conditionings? Where did that start? So 
it was first kind of really defined by a guy by the name of B.F. Skinner. And he was doing experiments on, he basically kind of took off, he was reading basically Pavlov's experience and going like, okay, maybe we can take this one step further and influence voluntary responses, right? So we can influence the decisions that animals or people make by providing consequences for whatever they do. And so he had these systems set up that are actually now known as Skinner boxes. And basically what it was is there was a button in the box and he had rats or pigeons or whatever that were in these boxes. And they had, so basically he had to teach the rats how to push the button. And then once the rats learned to push the button and realized that food came out anytime they wanted food, they'd go push the button and the food would fall out. They'd get a piece of food. And so what Skinner noticed was that once the rats learned that pushing the button made the food release, they would push that button way more often than they did when they were just in there and didn't know that that's what happened. I would too. So the, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the, the rats were basically conditioned through positive reinforcement to learn that that be that used to execute and they had an effect on their environment, right? So they go and they push, they choose to push the lever in order to access the food. So there's some higher level thinking going on there rather than just, I hear this sound and I start drooling. I mean, like he manipulated these boxes in all sorts of different ways too, right? Like just to see kind of what would happen. So he'd do things like he'd put electricity in the floor and if the rat or the pigeon like did a certain behavior, then the floor would electrocute them. And naturally, they became less inclined to do that behavior again in the future. Gotcha. I mean, kind of similar to our pain receptors. You know, you burn your hand on a skillet, you're going to pay attention next time and don't touch a hot skillet. Well, and that's exactly it, right? So, like, positive punishment, like, a lot of people will claim, like, oh, you know, you should never correct your dog because you're going to scar them for life and you're going to create a problem dog with so much anxiety, right? Like, I use my stove every night. I live in the middle of nowhere. Skip the dishes doesn't exist out here. (laughs) So I have to use my stove every single night. And I have burnt myself on that stove many, many times. But I don't get anxious or scared of using the stove, whatever, because I know that it's my behavior that influences whether or not I'm going to burn myself. If I burn myself, it would be because of something that I did and I have full control over that. So I don't need to be worried about using the stove because I understand clearly what's going to get me burned and I know how to avoid it. But on that same end, like if I'm sitting here cooking and occasionally somebody comes up behind me and pushes my hand into the pan and I don't know what's going to trigger it. I have no idea. I'm totally in the dark. It just randomly happens. There's nothing I can do to influence it. Then I'm going to have a little bit anxiety about getting too close to that stove because I don't want to get burnt and it's out of my control. And that's why it's so important to be able to communicate and make sure your dog is associating its behavior or actions with the correction. It doesn't just pay yeah, to, your dog to correct your dog. To understand what the correction was for so that they can then control it. Right. Absolutely. So speaking of that, you know, we touched on it a little bit earlier, you know, that naturally just goes right into the people and and the big movement that is 
know, positive reinforcement only trainers. And we already established that that's not exactly true. They may feel like they're doing that, but that's not exactly what they're doing. It, I mean, obviously it kind of comes from an emotional standpoint to where, you know, being nice to your dog and people just feel better about it. But I mean, do they over time naturally figure out that what they're doing is not positive reinforcement only? Like it, to me, you can't have the good without it, the bad. <laughs> it really depends. Like some people, like in a lot of ways, the positive reinforcement only movement is a has a little bit of kind of a cult mentality to it, too. Right? It's kind of almost a religion, right? They yep, talk yeah. a lot of science, but you can give them what, like, you can give them hard, solid, empirical, peer-reviewed evidence put it right in front of them. And some of them will look at that and go like, Oh, Hey, I was wrong. And that's great. If people are going to want to do that, but they don't always. Right. And you can put whatever you want in front of them and they just will not believe it because they don't want to. Lead a horse to water. Right. And like, I mean, like I said, like positive and negative and reinforcement and punishment are not, good or bad things, right? So me simply saying something like, nope, my dog could be, could be positive punishment, right? You, oh my God, I've just hurt your feelings, Mm -hmm. right? I haven't done anything to the dog. I haven't hit the dog. I haven't caused the dog any physical pain. I've just hurt his feelings. That's positive (laughs) punishment. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. So what's interesting is, is people are, not just using um, positive, positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement, yeah. <laughs> They're not just using positive no, reinforcement. Not. So, yeah, I mean. The minute you slap a leash on a dog, you're using some element of force. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that, and that's, that goes into a really big question that, that a lot of people don't understand, that a, a leash or a check cord is not positive reinforcement. And, you know, it, it, it kind of gives you a little bit of control over the train environment, but it's, it's like you said, it's, it's a, it's force around that dog. You're controlling that dog to some extent. Oh, absolutely. Right. Because the dog has the check cord on it. It can't, if it goes to the end of that check cord, that check cord is going to tighten. Yeah, or even, just, even like, just the check, the check cord being on the dog, like, whether you're pulling even if you on it don't or not. have it like in your right exactly the dog can only go within a certain distance right and it's it, just it's unnatural it feels it's there it's 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 a positive element right mm-hmm. and by positive yep. i don't mean good <laughs> positive punishment yep yep yeah depending on how you're using it right it's just a tool just like anything else right a tool is just a tool it's so, how the user uses it yeah. that ultimately determines whether or not it's effective or not or humane or not. Right. It's the same thing as an e-collar. It's another tool. And so would you define a, a leash or a check cord, the same thing as an e-collar as being an aversive when it comes to dog training? Oh, absolutely not. It's like a, just like a leash or a check cord. It's just a tool. 
like how you're going to use it is up to you. So like with your really good modern high-end collars, they have a really high range of very, very low-end stim. So I can actually give my dogs cues through the e-collar just like I would through a whistle. And it's not aversive to them at all. It's just something that they feel. Right. And, and so talking before we got on this podcast, you mentioned that there comes a point in time where you, where you really have to train or associate with aversion on some scenarios. What what defines an aversive in dog training and why is it so important for the handler to know what truly is an aversive and what isn't? An aversive is what your dog finds aversive. So it can be different for every other dog. Like I have one, my one dog, she's a Dutch shepherd. She's KNPV bred and like she's hard as nails. So my other dog is a German short haired pointer. And if I just look at him and I say, Jaeger, that was bad. And he's like slinking off and like, it's aversive to him. Yeah. Right. But if I do the same thing to my Dutch shepherd, she's going to be like, what is wrong with you? Whatever. I'm like, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Cool. So so it's a matter of what the dog itself finds aversive. Not what I think is aversive. Not what Joe Blow, my neighbor, thinks is aversive. Not what not what anybody else thinks is aversive. It's what the dog itself finds aversive. Gotcha. And and so really, I, I guess out of all of this, I mean, one of the hardest parts for a lot of handlers is knowing the balance between rewarding and reinforcing. And, you know, I, I know it kind of goes hand in hand with, with the four quadrants like we talked about. What is, what is the best practice of knowing the appropriate rate of reinforcement? Initially, when you first start, when you're first trying to start teaching a behavior, you need to be on what's called a constant reinforcement schedule. So you need to re, like you need to reward them for every single rep when they're in the learning stages because they don't know, right? So they need some that more feedback, and mm-hmm. they need to know what they're doing is the right thing. So you need to give them a reward every single time. Charging so then the when clicker. When they start to show. Exactly. Right. So if I like my puppy doesn't have a clue what it's doing, I've got it sitting in front of me and I get it to sit. The dog sits like I won't necessarily put a cue on it at this point, but I think that's a different conversation for another day. (laughs) But if I get the dog to sit, the dog sits and then I give it a piece of food. I got to give it that piece of food every time the dog sits. So that's going to make the behavior the dog's going to be like, hey, I get reinforced for this and they're going to start doing it more often, right? So now once I get it on a cue and I get the dog sitting proficiently on cue and I reinforce it every time, well, we don't want to keep doing this all the time, right? And the reinforcement is going to lose its value to the dog if you reinforce too often for too long. So at that point, what you need to do is you need to start transitioning into what's called a variable reinforcement schedule. So now you're going to start giving the dog a piece of food every second time it sits or every third time it sits, right? So you kind of want a little bit consistent, right? Go every second time or every third time, like don't switch it up too, too much. So, and then the dog will learn like, okay, I'm not going to get reinforcement every time, but I need to work a little bit harder to get to that reward. And so then when the dog learns that they're not going to get reinforced every single time, 
but they're working a little bit harder for it. Now we go what's into what's called a random reinforcement schedule. So the dog might get a reward back for back-to-back sits. The dog might have to do like 20 different behaviors before I give it a reward. And you've got to make sure that your dog's ready for that. Because if you push them too long and they kind of check out on you, you don't want that. But what you, but the point is to basically encourage them to work a little bit harder for the reward. And so it's basically the same premise that you'll see with slot machines, right? If you put a nickel in a slot machine and it gave you a nickel back every single time you hit the button, like that's boring and you're going to, right? You're going to lose interest and you're going to walk away and it's like, yeah, this is boring. But when it's random, right? So sometimes you're going to lose that nickel, right? And you're just good. But you keep putting more nickels in because you never know when that big payout is going to come. Right. So we basically do that with our dogs and we turn them into little cookie slot machines. <laughs> Gamblers. <laughs> Gambling addicts. <laughs> right? That's cool. So, so mean, when do you begin using, and I think I'll use the right the right quadrant here, but when, when do you begin with negative reinforcement? So we've been using the example of sit and then I do the, the variable, um, variable, what'd you call it? Rewarding or reinforcement rate of reinforcement, variable rate of reinforcement. And then after mm-hmm. that, I move to random rate of reinforcement. At what point yeah. do I, do I introduce e-collar and use negative reinforcement to encourage that behavior? So, if you're using so negative reinforcement with the e-collar, that's it. Kind of varies by dog. Like you are going to have to condition that e-collar. So you can't just go slap an e-collar on a dog and just start using it. Right? They do need to learn that that's what it means. But you mm-hmm. do also want them to learn the cue first. Like I don't want my dog's e-collar cue to necessarily be the e-collar. I want them to sit when I ask them to sit or right. whatever behavior it is I'm going to ask them to do. If you have a pointing dog that you don't want to teach to sit, obviously don't do that. <laughs> well, then, And that goes back to what we were talking about a little earlier with the uh, warning before hitting the e-collar, right? Uh, that way they're responding to you and not just the e-collar and you prevent getting that e-collar dependent dog that you always have to have the e-collar on. So here is a situation where you're not necessarily going to give a warning. So if I've asked the dog to sit, the dog has been collar conditioned. It knows what it's doing. Then I can turn on my e-collar. And so this kind of blurs the lines a little bit too, right? Because the dog didn't sit. So I'm technically correcting it. Mm -hmm. But then if I continue to hold that button, I'm now transitioning into negative reinforcement because as soon as the dog does sit, I'm now releasing the pressure. So that is one situation where you're not necessarily going to give the dog a warning before you correct them. So like if I'm out with my dogs and we're working cows and my dog starts getting a little nasty with one of the cows and I say no, and it's followed immediately by the e-collar stem, like that's where you would use that specific technique right? Where you say no, and then it's always followed by the e-collar correction. So in that technique, I've asked the dog to do something and it has not complied. So you're not necessarily going to give a warning. You're just going to correct it right away. That makes sense. Sorry, that didn't make any sense because I just contradicted what (laughs) I said earlier. (laughs) No, but I, 
but it makes sense to me because there's I'm there's a difference. I'm trying to in my brain here. There's a difference though. Yeah, in that is. case, you're using negative reinforcement. So you're not waiting for, you're not really waiting for a undesirable response. I mean, the dog's already given you an under, undesirable response and then you're mm-hmm. giving them, you know, pressure with the e-collar until they give you the correct response. Exactly. So like I said, it starts out as positive punishment because initially like introducing that is positive punishment because you are punishing them for not sitting. But once you hold the button, right? So if you just nick them for that, then that's positive punishment without negative reinforcement, right? So they don't sit, you nick them and then you try it again. Or you can, you know, you ask the dog to sit, you initiate it on constant and you hold that button down until the dog sits. Now you've just used both positive punishment and negative reinforcement. And that, and that's really similar to force fetch really when you're talking mm-hmm. the pressure, whether it's ear pinch, e collar, toe pitch, whatever is it. You're, you're teaching the dog. Here's a command. You have the pressure on it until you get the object in your mouth and you're taking it off. So it's the same thing. Yeah. And I won't usually teach pressure with behaviors, right? So I won't just start using e-collar in the behavior. So I actually usually introduce pressure initially with leash work. So when I get a puppy, they stay on a harness for quite a while until they're ready to learn a little bit about pressure. So usually about four or five months is when I'll put a leash on them for the first time. So if they're on the harness, they can pull away. I don't care. Harnesses are for pulling. That's what it's for. But then they get to a point where it's like, okay, you're getting a little big for dragging me down the street here. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so at that point, that's when I take my leash out. And I say, okay, this is your leash. And I pull on it a little bit. And at first, some of the dogs like freak out. They're like, oh my God, what is this sensation? I don't want to go with it. And they struggle <laughs> and they fight against it. And then eventually they give in and they move into it. And then you go, good. And you release that pressure, right? So they've learned that by not fighting against the pressure and doing what they've been asked to do, turns the pressure off. So that's usually how I initially introduce the pressure before I ever put an e-collar on the dog. And then eventually you'll layer the e-collar over behavior, other behaviors, but the dog has to know the behaviors. I'm not a fan of using e-collar as a teaching tool, right? I prefer using food and luring or free shaping or however I feel it's best to train a specific behavior through rewards. And then once they're proficient at that behavior, then I'll start layering the collar over. So that's when I put the collar on the dog. I put it on super, super low stim. So it's at that point where they feel it. It's not in any way aversive. They just feel that sensation because it's a really weird sensation for them. So it's really important they need to learn to understand what it is, what makes it start, and how to turn it off. So I'll put it on them, and I'll put it just super low to the point where they feel it, but it's not aversive. And I'll just ask the dog to sit, hold the button at the same time, and then as soon as the dog sits, let it go. Everything's all hunky-dory. And so I teach them like that. I have to make sure that they can feel it. right? And then you'll kind of progress into that. You'll gradually turn it higher and higher until the dog understands that if they don't sit, that thing happens. And that when make, that thing happens, this is what I need to do to turn it off. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I think there's a lot of people that get turned off by 
e-callers in general. And I, I agree. I don't like to teach something with the e-caller. You know, I guess I'm picturing just the two reinforcement quadrants. Like all the teaching happens in the positive reinforcement quadrant. And then once the behavior is known, I kind of switch over to the negative reinforcement quadrant. Mm -hmm. Well, and like, I mean, that's a general, like, so there's ways that I generally, yeah, generally, yes. I have a lot of (laughs) guidelines and not a lot of rules. So I find like, I mean, especially like back in my Schutzen days, if you had a dog that was just like super energetic, like super hyper, the first thing they'll tell you, and like in the hunting dog world too, the first thing we guys are going to tell you is, oh, you got to get after that right now. You can't have that. You got to get up. You got to get that under control. And I've actually found exactly the opposite. So if you get really good at using motivation-based training, those dogs respond to it really well because they're like that because they're highly motivated dogs. And so a dog that's like super hyper bouncing off the walls, if you teach them that what you have to offer them is fun, they're going to like try to work you for fun all day long and they will do whatever (laughs) it takes. And they usually need very little corrections, right? Because that non-reinforcement of, nope, you didn't do it. You've got to try it again. And they're like, oh my God, please let me try it again, right? (laughs) And then you've got the dogs that are kind of on the other end of the spectrum where they just don't want to do it. And those dogs are easy, right? Square peg, round hole, this isn't going to work. You go to a pet home. <laughs> yep. That's, that's really interesting. Right yeah. That's really interesting, a lot of this. And I, we, honestly, we could talk about this for hours. I mean, me and Adam <laughs> yep. are just sitting here. I mean, I'm it, ready to go train a dog right now <laughs> after talking to you. <laughs> we, we're definitely getting... certain dogs that just aren't cut out right they're never gonna do it like they're never gonna enjoy it and it's just it's not really nice to try to make them do it but what's interesting is i found the dogs that are kind of in the middle those ones usually need a lot more compulsion than your crazy high energy dogs because they're not as motivated for the rewards so they won't try as hard for the rewards. so you're gonna have to use a lot more compulsion on those dogs and, and, and it's that, just, it is what it is. That kind of makes sense at its core when you talk about these high drive, bouncing off the wall, eat your car in half kind of dogs. They're they're motivated by the reward of going out there and finding the fun. They're out there looking for the birds or whatever motivates them. They're out there. And so if you can take that same motivation that they have for what they want and you make it mm-hmm. something that they want – then yeah, that, I can definitely see how that makes a little bit more sense than just trying to you know, have them bend the knee, so to speak. Yeah, you've got to show them where you want them to put that energy. Is the key is the key to that, right? Yeah. Like, if you would have told me like 15 years ago that I would have the nut bar dogs that I have today, yeah. I would have been like, oh my god, like. Who wants that kind of dog? Like, get out of here, right? Yep, yep. But they're really great dogs once you learn how to kind of channel that chaos, right? Like I said, it comes back to my horse racing days, putting the bra- putting some brakes on it without producing the performance. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. And there's not a there's not a gas pedal on the dogs that that don't have all that energy, but you can always put a brake pedal on the dog that that is pretty high drive. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Angie, what are we leaving out? We've enjoyed this. 
I've enjoyed it too. This is great, guys. <laughs> well, like Nick said, we could probably keep talking about this stuff for hours. Um, can't thank you enough for coming on. We've we've just been taking notes, really. Yeah. So you want to take a second and plug plug everything where people can find you and find more information on your training and what you have available? Sure. So you can find me at www.elitesportdogs.com. Um, I've got a whole bunch of stuff. Like I'm actually, I'm adding to my website almost daily with resources and stuff like that. So I do some board and train. Um, I do actually typically try to stay away from the board and train though, because what I really actually enjoy doing is teaching people how to train their own dogs. Exactly. So if you like, if you're local to me, a lot of probably aren't, I do like basically in-person training where you come out to my facility, you can use my equipment, my birds, my everything. And I basically kind of work with you through training your own dog. And the other thing that I've recently started doing that um, actually happened because of the COVID-19 thing, because I couldn't work in person with my clients anymore, was I started doing some online training. And actually, um, my only regret was that I didn't think of it sooner, because now I get to work with people from all over the place with their dogs. And so we just basically set up a video chat, and I watch you work with your dog and give you some pointers as to how to improve whatever you're trying to improve. And like, I mean... There's no limit to what we can work on. You basically just shoot me an email, tell me what you want to work on. We'll work out a time and go from there. Awesome. We'll have to check that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been super great. Cause I mean, honestly, this industry needs a lot, like way more resources for people that want to train their own dogs. Cause like there's a lot of good training videos out there. And like a lot of them are fantastic. Like I'm not knocking training videos whatsoever. Sure. But what happens when your dog doesn't follow the program anymore and you've now got this problem? Well, now you either give up and just be like, and eh, it's not going to be a hunting dog or you send it to the trainer, which most people don't want to do. Right. And there's not a lot of resources out there for people that want to train their own dogs and, you know, maybe even train their dogs their own way. Cause sometimes you go out to the club and they're like, nope, you have to do it this way. It's our way or the highway. This is the only way to do it. And like, I mean, I don't roll like, right? like it's not a way that's working for you. I'll just try to make you a little bit better than where we started. Like, yeah. I'm not out there trying to make everybody into a professional trainer. I just want to be help people to be a little bit better than where they were 20 minutes ago. Like. Well, hopefully a lot of people are better off and at least understand the the importance of understanding the why instead of just the how-to and worrying about how do I do this, how do I do this. Understand your dog, be able to communicate your dog, and you're going to be better off for it. And please check out Angie at, at, at her Facebook, Instagram, and her website. Check her out online. And uh, Angie, we really enjoyed this. This was a really fun conversation, and we'll have to have you back on later. Yeah, no, anytime, you guys. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Yep. Bye. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. 
Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just after to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.